You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. Now step into the arena of ideas with your host, Dr. Brian Shelton. Come to you from the mystic, majestic Appalachian Mountains of Northwestern North Carolina. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast, where we take Christian truth to the arena of ideas. Hello, friends. My name is Dr. Brian Chilton, and I'm so thankful uh, to be on the air with you this afternoon. Uh, due to some scheduling problems and conflicts this afternoon, I uh, had to come to you a little bit earlier tonight uh, than normal, uh, actually about a couple hours earlier than normal. So with the new format that we have with the podcast, that makes uh, the, these things a little bit easier to manage uh, when situations uh, occur. And so anyhow, we hope I hope that you're doing well. hope uh, everyone your way is uh, healthy and well. Is and uh, So I want to let you know just a little bit just to handle some housekeeping about what's ahead for this month. We are starting a brand new month here on the Bellator Christie Podcast. And believe it or not, after tonight, we only have two episodes remaining uh, on our series, in our series on bibliology. Of course, bibliology has been the study of the scripture. And so we only have two remaining podcasts. And we're going to do this a little different. Coming up next week... Uh, we're going to have uh, a double header coming your way now. What we had been doing is we had been having a, uh, we had have had a double header where we had the regular episode of the podcast and then turning around to have the questions on with uh, our cowboy apologist Curtis Evelo. Well, next week we're going to tweak things a little differently. On the fourteenth, that is next Thursday, we're going to have a double header uh, presenting to you the last two episodes. Uh, in our series on bibliology, we're going to talk a little bit about foreshadowing and prophecy on the 14th episode. That'll be probably coming to you around 7:30ish uh, on in Eastern on Eastern time, and then coming up uh, uh, coming up shortly after that, about 8 8:30, we're going to come back with another episode. Uh, a new episode coming back uh, with uh, episode 15. We're going to title this Alexandria versus Antioch versus Augustine. And you may say, Augustine, Antioch, Alexandria, what's that about? There's actually an argument that happened uh, early in the church history about how to interpret Scripture. So as we bring our series on bibliology to a close, I think it behooves us to look at how the best ways we should interpret Scripture are. Do we go along the pathway of Antioch? Do we go along the pathway of Alexandria? Or do we go with Augustine and how he interpreted Scripture? That's all going to make a lot more sense when we get there, uh, when we get there coming up on our second episode coming up next week. Alexandria, Antioch, Augustine, we're having a... a, a a, a, a triple header, a, tr- a triple uh, contest between these three views, and I think one surfaces uh, better than the other, uh, the other two. So we'll take take a look at that on how best to interpret Scripture coming up next week. Also, looking at foreshadowing and prophecy should be a great night of podcasting. Both of them should be around 30, 30 minutes. So really, if you take the two podcasts together, it'll be an hour in duration. 
And then coming up on December 21st, the Cowboy Apologist returns with another episode of the Question Zone. And then we won't have any episodes coming up the last week of December. Uh, we'll, we'll be we'll be celebrating the holidays with family and friends. Uh, and then coming up in January, January and the first half of February, uh, we will begin our new series. We're going to have this as a regular ongoing tradition on the future seasons of Bellator Christie Podcast, having a winter Bible study series. This year, in this season, we're going to look at the book of Galatians. And so we'll take a look at the book of Galatians coming up in January. Then we have two more series ahead, uh, one on anthropology, the study of humanity, We'll have more information as we get closer to that series, and then we'll close out the season with a very short study on homartology, the study of sin. So we've still got a lot of great episodes. We're halfway through, nearly halfway finished with Season 7. Hard to believe that we are, but uh, we've got some great things ahead for you still on Season 7. So we hope that you'll join us along for the ride. So tonight we're talking about the genres of biblical literature. We talk about genres. What are we talking about? Uh, many people ask, well, what, what's a genre? What do you mean by that? Well, think about think about with music. You have different genres of music. You have rock as a genre. Country is a genre of music. Gospel. And even then, you have contemporary Christian. You have southern gospel, bluegrass, classical, and so on and so on forth. Well, in the Bible, we see that there are different writing styles in the pages of Scripture. So, if you think you can just pick up the Bible and read it uh, without giving some thought to the, the genre, you're going to be sadly mistaken, because I think anyone who picks up a copy of Scripture knows that you can't read Revelation the same way you read the book of Genesis, and you can't read the Gospel of John the same way you read the, the book of Romans, or First Kings, or whatever the case may be. Um, we see that there are different genres. We see that there are different styles. And, and it's important for us to recognize these different genres of Scripture so that we can rightly handle the word of truth. Uh, because if as, as I hope you've seen through this series, what's most important for us is for us to understand what God is trying to communicate to us and not what we are wanting the Scripture to say. If, if we're pushing our interpretations over what God says, then we've, then we've just really de-escalated the, 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 the divine aspect of the Word of God. We, we've made it more about us than we have God. And so if, God, if the Bible excuse me, is a divinely written book, then it behooves us as believers to try to understand what it says. And part of that is to understand the biblical genres. So we, as far as I can tell, there are seven genres of, of literature in the Bible. And I understand the Bible is one unified book, theologically speaking, but it's 66 individual books written by over 40 authors and spanning over 2,000 years in duration. So what are the seven genres of, of biblical literature? Well, the first is called law. Uh, we find this in the uh, latter portions of Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Uh, we find that especially in that area. There may be some other laws, but 613 laws in the Old Testament we find in really particularly the first five books of the Bible. 
Historical narrative is another um, major genre of scripture. Uh, here's where we learn about individuals, we learn about nations, we will learn about historical historical events that have taken place. And so uh, there is a way we read this historical narrative uh, that is that is very useful and very helpful for us as well. Uh, we also see that there's the genre called poetry. Uh, poetry is another genre. Uh, that's that's very important for us to understand and, and interpret. I think for me personally, I'm not a musically inclined, and so for me, uh, poetry is a little is probably a little more difficult for me than it is some other aspects. Um, so, but but that is a very important part of. Um, uh, of 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 the of the word of God, we're going to learn more about that as we go along. So we also see there's the genre of prophecy. Prophecy we see this in the major prophets. We see it in the minor prophets. Uh, it's important for us to understand that as well. Uh, look into the different prophecies and see what they say and and how best to interpret those. Sometimes they're full, full of poetry as well, and so it's important to understand. Uh, uh, that as long, along with other things, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along. Bibliography. Uh, this is really particularly found in the Gospels, the four Gospels. Uh, we'll take a look at the nuance between that and what would be regular history. And then we see the epistles. Uh, that's a genre. These are letters written by an individual to a group of people. And then what's called apocalyptic literature rounds out our seven genres. And we find this especially in Revelation. Uh, we find it in Daniel and uh, Ezekiel, parts of Ezekiel as well, and, and even in some portions of Isaiah. So let's take a look. Let's take a deeper look at these different genres. Law, the law makes, and, and I'm going to give you some, some, percentages some of them may not be exactly precise because i had to do some finagling trying to figure out how much it would be in relation to uh some different aspects uh when related to different um, different sections of biblical uh the biblical genres so so i'm, I'm going to give us about two percent now, there's 613 laws, and it constitutes a major section of uh, the early parts of the Bible. And that's not to say that there aren't other legal codes found throughout the pages of Scripture. But if, if you look at uh, the first five books in contrast to the totality of the biblical canon, you're looking at about 2 to 5%. Um, the question comes, though, how do we interpret the law? How do we interpret the law of God? Uh, because what do you do with when he talks about sacrificing animals, sacrificing a goat, or sacrificing uh, different species of animals, and sprinkling their blood on the on the altar? I mean, is that something we do today, or uh, what do we do with that? What do you do with some of the things that uh, calls for um, different things to do with the nation of Israel? We don't live in Israel. I don't live in Israel. I live in the southeastern United States. So, how does that apply? Well. When you look at the law, understand there are three different versions of law, three, three, three different kinds of laws in, uh, in the Bible. First of all, there's what's called a cultic or religious law. It's a religious law. And this is talking about sacrifices 
that were made in antiquity where you may sacrifice a goat or you may sacrifice a dove or you may sacrifice these different these different animals for different celebrations for different reasons you may sacrifice uh, different offerings um, that is a limited uh, legal code because it's talking about the covenant of that day as as Christians as believers we're part of what's called the new covenant in Christ meaning that we uh, are led by the grace of God we are filled with the grace of God we're under a new law so to speak the law of grace the law of love and so these old sacrifices uh, are not intended to continue because we understand we had the ultimate sacrifice in Christ Jesus and so he is that once for all sacrifice for us so this is very limited uh, there's national laws uh, so, for instance, in Leviticus 19.10, I want to flip over there real quickly. I want to share some scripture as we go along. Uh, Leviticus 19.10. Uh, let me see if I can find this right quickly. Where did it go? <laughs> um, I'll tell you what. We'll, we'll do this. And... Bring this one up. For some reason, it was not wanting to show. So let, let's take a look at this. Um, it says in Leviticus 19, uh, 9 and 10, When you reap your harvest of your land, you are not to reap to the very edge of your field or gather the gleanings of your har harvest. Do not strip your vineyard bare or gather its fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor and the resident alien. I am the Lord your God. Okay, so that is a national code. Uh, so many of us aren't farmers today. Uh, so how would this apply to our lives? Well, there's another type of law we're going to look at here in just a moment that supersedes onto some of these other laws that help us make make sense of some of the things going on. So there's a third there's a third kind of law we find in the Bible that's a moral law. These laws are transcendent, where the religious laws are limited and the national laws are limited. The moral laws are transcendent or unlimited and apply to all people of all times. So, um, so for instance, let's take a look at uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, he, here is um, here is a passage of scripture that would be considered a transcendent law, a moral law. Uh, here, here we find it says Shema Yisrael, Yisrael, the uh, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your strength. Now Jesus told us in the New Testament that this was the first and greatest commandment of all commandments, and the second one from Leviticus 14, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the second greatest commandment of all. These are moral laws that are transcendent upon uh, onto every person. So the love of God is the greatest commandment. The love of neighbor is the second greatest commandment. But look what you can do here. Um, if you go back to some of these other laws, even though they might not necessarily apply to us today, there is uh, there is a transcendent um, there is a transcendent moral law found in them. So, for instance, if we go back to Leviticus nineteen. You reap your harvest of your land. You're not to reap the very edge of your field or gather gleanings of your harvest. Do not strip your vineyard bare or gather its fallen grapes. Leave them for the poor and the resident alien. I am the Lord your God. 
There is a moral law written within the national law given there. And I'm sure if you look closely, you can find what it is. What was the purpose of for them, for God commanding the individuals not to strip all the fruit and field bare? It was to leave a portion on the very fringe, on the very edge, for the people who were poor and the vulnerable, for those who were the immigrants, for those who were uh, vulnerable to society who may not have a lot. They were to care for them by providing something you might consider an ancient form of welfare uh, to help them out in their time of need. So, beloved, understand that written within these laws, there is a moral foundation found within. Sometimes you may have to look a little deeper to find that moral code, but that's a way that you can apply these ancient laws to our lives today as individuals uh, living under the law of grace. Uh, So, we don't keep the Sabbath day on Saturday when you see that code, uh, when you see that law. We understand our Sabbath day as Christians is on Sunday because that's the Lord's day. That's the day that he rose from the dead. And that's why we celebrate on Sunday. It's resurrection day. That's why we do that. So hopefully this gives a little explanation as to how we can better interpret uh, the laws in the Bible. So let me hurry up and move on. The rest of them won't be as in-depth, I don't believe, even though they could be. The second portion is what we call historical narratives. Uh, and this constitutes a whopping, if you count the Gospels in with this, this constitutes a whopping 43%, 43% of the overall uh, portion of the Bible is, is considered historical narrative. Uh, that, that to me is amazing. Uh, 43% is considered historical narrative. Now, so how do you interpret historical narratives? Uh, well, let's take a look. Uh, I, I want to go to 1 Kings 19. Um, and so we're, we're going to come back to this here in a few moments. So here, here's a few things you need to do to understand historical narratives. First of all, understand the times that, that it's occurring. Uh, understand we're separated by many different Many different from a great deal of time, thousands of years from the occurrence. So there's a different culture. There's a, there's a different uh, series of events going on. Uh, it's important to understand the background to these passages of Scripture. It's important to understand a little bit of something about the people involved in these different stories. And so at the end of the day, this is one of my favorite because favorite uh, asp- uh, genres of, of Scripture, to be honest with you, because you know I'm I'm. I'm somewhat of a historian. I minored in history for my doctorate, and so uh, I can I fancy myself a historian um, to some degree. And so I love history because through history we learn about people. We learn about the stories of individuals who preceded us. And by the way, as we've we learn, uh, it's, it's a cliche, but it's, it's so true. Those who forget about their past are doomed to repeat it. Or those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. So, so look for the individuals. Read them as read the stories as if you're read the, the narratives as if you're reading a story, and also look for the theological aspects of the story. What did God do? Uh, how did He interact with others? Uh, 
Now understand, the Bible tells us that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change. So the way that he interacted with people of the past gives us a good indication on how God will interact with us in the present and how he will interact with us in the future. So I want to bring up a story here in 1 Kings chapter 19. So it's the story of Elijah, the prophet Elijah. And uh, we see Elijah became afraid, and it says in verse 3, this is 1 Kings 19, uh, he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there, but he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down and slept under a broom tree. Suddenly an angel touched him. The angel told him, get up and eat. Then he looked, and there at his head was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord returned for a second time and touched him and said, get up. And and so we see he eventually, in verse 9, entered a cave there and spent the night. Suddenly the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. And he says, Go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. And at that moment the Lord passed by. A great mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper, a still, small voice. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of a cave. Now, if you look previously at this story, you see that Elijah, God had really moved through Elijah. Uh, There was a competition on Mount Carmel, and uh, Elijah was up against thousands of, uh, or not hundreds, I should say, of the prophets of Baal, and I was 850, I think, altogether. Uh, And so nonetheless, there was this great victory he had at Mount Carmel, but, but now he's running for his life. Why is that? Well, look, the very first part of the chapter. Jezebel, Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, May the gods punish me and do more severely if I don't make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So it's important to understand Jezebel. Jezebel was a wicked queen. She was brutal. She was very brutal. So it's important to understand about Jezebel. It's important to understand about the prophet Elijah. It's important to read this story in the context of what had just happened in chapter 18. So read it as a a story. And as you've heard many people say, you've heard me say before, and many others, don't read Bible verses. Read Bible passages. Read it as if you're reading a story. And read large chunks, and it helps you really understand better about what's going on. The third genre of scripture, um, this is second, uh, this is the second largest segment of scripture after the narrative, narrative at 43%. The third genre of scripture is poetry. And this constitutes a whopping 33%. A third of the Bible 
is written in poetry. The prophets, and this kind of overlaps because Jesus teaches with some prose and poetry. Uh, the prophets taught in, in poetic fashion, but really you find the, 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 most, the most dense poetry of all, uh, or the densest poetry of all, in the books of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs, uh, Song of Songs, or Song, Song of Solomon. Uh, so it's important to understand the poetic form. It's important to detect uh, information such as in chiasms. So in, for chiasms, um, you have a certain part, like what you'd call A, and it's repeated again at the last part of, of the section. And then you have another part B that's going to talk about something else. And then you have another part B down here. You have a part C over here that's going to mention something. Part C here. And then you have a D in the middle. And so it makes this, if you put it together, it, make, it looks like an X. Uh, com, chiasm comes from the Greek letter key, which looks like an X. And so it crisscrosses until you come to this middle. Here's the reason that's important to know. You say, well, why do I need to know this? Here's the reason why. Because with the prophets, that centermost section of the chiasm is the main point of the text. There's something very important. It's the, it's the glue that binds the entire message together. So, for instance, the book of Revelation is written as a chiasm. And Revelation chapter 12 is the centermost chapter uh, of that chiasm. And in that chapter, we learn about the woman who fled from the dragon and she gave birth to a child. In that chapter, John is giving the overarching story of Jesus, the redemption of Jesus and the redemption of the church from the dragon who is pursuing the woman with child. And if you understand chapter 12, it really helps in understanding the rest of Revelation because of the chiastic pattern in which the book was written. Now, this can get complicated. I, I understand that. But it's also important to, to look for the human elements in these, in these songs. For instance, the imprecatory psalms, uh, where someone is calling for the death of someone, and you may think, well, man, that's awful, you know, to, to dash people's heads against the stones. And Well, understand, don't read that literally. This is someone who's having an outburst of emotion. And you may hear people say, well, you should never question God. Well, I wonder, have they read the poetic portions of Scripture? Because Job questioned God. David questioned God. And they're asking, why, oh God, are you allowing these things to happen? There's a lot of emotion in these texts. So again, you don't need to necessarily take some of it literally. And in Job, some of the prose and poetry that's given there uh, isn't intended to, to speak theological truth because the friends, the friends are saying things that God later comes back and says is wrong. So you have to read it all together. Don't read Bible verses. Read Bible passages. And that's especially important when it comes to uh, when it comes to uh, the poetic forms as well, Jesus often spoke in parallelisms. Uh, he, you know, some of them were antithetical parallelisms, where he's con contrasting different things. Uh, there are synonymous parallelisms where he's comparing things. Um, that would be a whole other podcast in, entirely. Um, 
Anyone who says that Jesus was uneducated and was a country bumpkin has never read the teachings of Jesus. I'm just going to throw that out there. If you think that Jesus was some dumb country bumpkin, <laughs> illiterate, uneducated, then obviously you haven't you haven't looked at the styles in which Jesus taught. Jesus taught every with the complexities of a philosopher and the the knowledge of a rabbi. The fluidity of a rabbi, the, the poetic... He, he's taught with the same type of poetic structure that you find in the prophetic writings in the Old Testament. He really did. You, you see a lot of the same structures. The parallelisms is really one of the, one of the greatest uh, literary devices that Jesus uses. He uses puns. Jesus was funny. Jesus was hilarious. If you go back and understand the culture and background... Uh, behind what he's saying, when Jesus gave the, the the parable of the Good Samaritan, Samaritans were hated. <laughs> they were hated. They were despised by the Jewish individuals that day because they were looked at as being half breeds. They were they were mixed. They were half Jewish, half Gentile. So they were seen as being half breeds. And so a lot of the a lot of the individuals of the in the Jewish elite they didn't care for the Samaritans. Wouldn't even speak to them. But yet Jesus uses the Samaritan as the hero. <laughs> as the hero in that parable. I mean, way to go, Jesus. I mean, there is a there is a profound lesson found in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's not just the story itself. It's who he uses as the hero of the story. He, he's breaking all kinds of boundaries, Jesus is. And he's doing it somewhat through poetry. Prophecy constitutes, uh, so again, the law constitutes about 2%, historical narrative about 43%, including the Gospels. Poetry about 33%. Prophecy is about 15%. It may be more. It may be more, but at least about a quarter of the Bible, uh, not really a quarter of the Bible, but a little less than a quarter of the Bible, maybe even up to a quarter of the Bible, is prophetic. A large segment of the scripture is prophetic. And as we look at prophecy, it's important to understand that the prophets were doing two things. They were foretellers and foretellers. Now, when we read the prophets, we a lot of times want to just look for the predictive prophecy. But if you're only looking for predictive prophecy, you're missing out on some huge truths. You're missing out on some huge theological bombs in, in the prophetic writings, let me tell you. Because in the foretelling, foretelling is predicting the future. Foretelling is speaking to the people of that day and time. Uh, so there are, there are some problems going on. That's why God raises up prophets. He, he says through one of the prophets, I think it's Amos, maybe it's another prophet, that God never brings judgment without first bringing a prophet to warn the people. He never brings judgment without first bringing a prophet to warn the people of the problem, of the sins of that day and age. So look for what the problems were. Look for what it was that disturbed God. And you learn a little bit about God's morality. You learn a little bit more about the ethics that we should hold as individuals because we know that God is pure, God is holy, God is just, God is the absolute good. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. God is love. 
You know, that's why the Bible tells us that if we're tempted, let us not say that we're tempted of God because God doesn't tempt with evil, okay? He strengthens us. He builds us up, but he doesn't, he doesn't tempt us. So understand that. Understand there's, there's some aspects of Scripture that may be double fulfillments. Uh, so for instance, here's, here's a good... Here's a good Christmas passage of Scripture. Let's let's share the screen one more time here. Um, a good Christmas passage of Scripture found here in Isaiah uh, 7.14. Isaiah 7.14. Here is the passage of Scripture says, uh, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. So this is an example of a double fulfillment. This was in one way fulfilled by King Ahaz, because it wasn't a virgin who gave birth to him. It was a young woman who gave birth to him. But more directly, this, this passage of Scripture speaks to the fulfillment that would be found in Jesus Christ, because the virgin would be a miraculous sign. The virgin would give birth uh, to uh, the Son and called him Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Jesus means God is salvation. Uh, so uh, God with us bringing salvation, so to speak. So prophecy is another genre of scripture. Bibliography is uh, another segment. I, w- I would say this is probably about 2% maybe. Here we're looking at mainly the four Gospels. Uh, we're, we're looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And there are a few tips that I could share with you on how to best interpret the Gospels. Uh, number one, read them in the scope of the entire story. Okay, You may see the... It's difficult for the written text to present a wink of the eye uh, and, and certain body language. So, for instance, when the woman... The Syrophoenician woman, I believe it was, if memory serves, came to Jesus asking him to uh, heal her daughter, I believe it was. And Jesus uh, says that he's, he's, uh, he's come to the house of Israel. He hasn't come to, to uh, feed the dogs. And you read that, or, or it may, it's actually translated puppies. Um, and you read that and think, man, that's kind of cruel. But understand, Jesus is is probably speaking to some sin in that woman's life. It may have been that she was racist or anti-Semitic against Jewish people in that day, and so it may be saying, "Well, you know, she may have had something in her life going on." We we really just don't know. Maybe that she had something in her life going on, and and we um, and and he's 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 combating that. He's bringing it to the surface. Because, you know, Jesus heals us by bringing things to the surface in our lives. He exposes them to, to heal us. And so I think that's what he's doing. So it's important to read that story in the context of the entirety of Scripture, in the entirety of the gospel message, because we see how tender and gentle Jesus was with a young child. Even though the disciples didn't want to allow the young children to come to him, he says, permit them to come, for such is the kingdom of God. We see that Jesus had compassion on the Samaritan woman at the well. So we understand here that Jesus is doing something else. He's not being rude. He's not being cruel. He's exposing something in that woman's life. And, and by doing so, he eventually says that this woman has greater faith than 
hardly anyone he's ever seen. This woman has such great faith, has tremendous faith. And he said that about some who were non-Jewish, some Gentile individuals, that they had great faith. So Jesus eventually uh, healed the, the, uh, the lady's loved one. And so we see if we, again, when, when problematic passages problematic passages come, read it in the context of the overall book. Also pay attention to the theological meaning. In Matthew's gospel, he's presenting Jesus as the Messiah. Mark is presenting Jesus as the Son of God. Uh, Luke is presenting Jesus as the Son of Man. And John is presenting Jesus as the Lagos, the Word of God. And also re- look for repetitive themes. So, for instance, Jesus really emphasizes that we could, we could spend a lot of time on each one of these genres. So I'm, to, to say that I'm rushing through this is really an understatement because we really are. Um, but look for co- repetitive themes. Jesus mentions the kingdom of God repetitively. There's a reason for that. He mentions the kingdom of heaven. He mentions the kingdom of God. Uh, he mentions... Um, uh, uh, the kingdom is presented as a um, already here, not yet kingdom. The kingdom is already here and was coming through Jesus, but the kingdom is not like what it would be at the end of time when he returns and brings every nation under subject, under subjection to his authority. And at that time, we'll have a perfect government because God himself will be leading that government and not we ourselves, although we'll be helping, I'm sure, in some capacity. So it's important to look for the key things. Look for key titles like Son of Man and and connect that back to the Old Testament because if you miss the connection in Daniel, uh, was it 7, 14, I think it was, 13 and 14, somewhere in that area, if you miss the connection back to the Son of, God, uh, Son of Man passage in Daniel, you're going to miss the entire theme of what he's of how he's presenting himself. The Son of Man is an extremely important title, and so it's important to know that. So look for these themes. Read it it much like you do the historical narrative, because the biggest difference between historical narrative and and bibliography, uh, the bibliographical um, genre, is that bibliographies only look at one person, whereas histories look at a group of people. Okay, and then seven percent. So that's two percent for bibliography. Seven percent of Scripture is comprised of the New Testament epistles. These are letters written by an individual to a group of people. So it's important to look for the reason why the letters were written. Now, though God intended the letters to apply to our lives, understand we were not the original recipients. So there's a reason. There's a problem which led Paul or John or Peter or James, Jude, led these individuals to write to the people they did. So it's important to understand the reason, uh, as best as we can tell, the reason for why the, the letter was written. It's important for us to understand the culture of the area, uh, the, the history of the area. That'll bring up a lot of important nuggets in the Scripture. It's important to understand what parts uh, are, were intended to be universal and what parts were specific for that particular church in that particular situation. Look for important key words. That's, that's a very important thing. Look for important key words. If you see a word repeated a lot or you see a theme repeated a lot, 
then you might want to go back and underline or make note of where those words occur in the text because Paul or Peter, John, they're really driving home an important point if they repeat the words as they do. And also look for creeds and hymns as they're quoting these ancient creeds, these ancient hymns, presenting to the, to the, to the people that they're writing. They're preserving these creeds and hymns for a reason, and they point us back to the early beliefs of the church. In fact, First First uh, Corinthians chapter fifteen verses three through seven has has been dated to no later than five years after Jesus was crucified, died, buried, and resurrected. Uh, and and some people have even suggested that it may even be dated to within months of the resurrection. And we're talking about the construction of this creed. There are many different ways in which uh, the writers of the scripture read, wrote, uh, wrote, in, wrote things in a poetic fashion, like the chorus of a song, to help people memorize, to remember, and for it to sink in their, their minds, so that as they meditated on the scripture, meditated on God, it would become a part of them, and they could pass it along to future generations. And then lastly, we see the apocalyptic genre of literature. Now this is perhaps one of the most controversial of all the genres because here we're talking about the book of Revelation. We're also talking about the book of Daniel, certain portions of the Gospels, uh, called, especially called the Olivet Discourse that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, so Daniel is one, Ezekiel is another um, portion of the scripture that contains apocalyptic literature, as well as certain parts of the book of Isaiah, especially toward the end of Isaiah. There's also some apocalyptic literature found there. Now, how do we interpret, how do we interpret this, this, um, this genre of literature? Well, I'm going to pull up one last time tonight. I went a little over for what I intended time-wise, but that'll be all right. Uh, I want to share one more passage of Scripture with you. Uh, but, and let me first of all say here that we need to read the Bible, apocalyptic literature, really the Bible in, in general, but especially apocalyptic literature. Read it with great humility. Okay? Understand... And it's supposed, and we we really should understand that we're not going to understand everything. Okay, we're not going to understand everything in totality. Okay, uh, because John is is seeing a vision of heaven. He's seeing things that are difficult to put in human terms. So he's writing with a lot of symbol and metaphor. There are a lot of symbols and metaphors found in apocalyptic literature. And these symbols, these metaphors, speak to divine truths. So try to understand the symbols. Try to understand the uh, metaphors used. You Look for divine titles. And uh, always connect it back to the Old Testament. You really need to read the book of Revelation in lieu of the book of Daniel, also the Olivet Discourse, uh, Ezekiel. Um, I think it's important to even understand the twelve plagues. I mean, not the twelve plagues, the ten plagues uh, of the Exodus, because I think you find nuances with some of these judgments connected back to the ten plagues of of, uh, of Egypt. Okay, so let, let me give you an example here. In Revelation one. Um, I love this passage of scripture, by the way. John sees in this vision. 
and says in, in, in Revelation 1.12, Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. All right, let's stop right there. Okay. Seven is the number of perfection in Scripture. Gold is a color, uh, an imagery of divinity, of royalty, but especially divinity. Lampstands, okay, lampstands often represent the church. Um, we see when he writes uh, to the letters uh, that he, he talks about Jesus warns that if they didn't get their, their act straightened out, that he would remove their lampstand. In other words, they would be a church in name only. And boy, that's a powerful statement. So he's he's turned and he's standing. But he saw the seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. Now here again, connect this back to Daniel seven thirteen, Daniel ten sixteen, Revelation fourteen fourteen, but particularly Daniel seven. There, Daniel sees one like a son of man who's approaching the Ancient of Days, who approaches God the Father. And the way this is written, the bar, uh, the, the, the bar Enosh, um, I think is how, if, if memory serves, the bar Enosh in Aramaic, the, the one like a son of man, one like a son of man, that's important to understand, like a son of man, in other words, this was a divine being that had the shape of a human, that that looked like a human. This is the same type of language John is using here in this passage. So if you don't understand Daniel 7, then it's going to be more difficult to understand Revelation 1. Okay, so he's standing among the lampstands. That's the church, or a symbol of the church, the seven golden lampstands. Standing, you know, could be representative. I'm not saying it absolutely is, but it could be representative of the church. He's dressed in a robe. He has this golden sash, again, another sign of divinity, sash wrapped around his chest. There's another image right there that he's presenting, and that's one of a priest. The priest would have this gold, this sash wrapped around, dressed in the robe, golden sash wrapped around his chest. This again is a symbol of priesthood, a divine priest. The hair of his head was white as wool. Now that's representing two things. That's a symbol representing two things. One, in ancient times, if a person had gray hair, that was a sign of great wisdom. <laughs> so if you have gray hair, look, my, my hair, my beard is getting gray, so maybe that's a good sign instead of a bad. Well, anyhow... This is a sign of wisdom, but it's also a sign of divinity here. It's a sign of purity, that he's absolutely pure. Okay? White as snow, he even says. Absolutely pure. He's pure in holiness. He's absolutely holy. And look right here. He says he has eyes like a fiery flame. Eyes as flames of fire. What does that mean? Well, this is a symbol meaning that Jesus is able to look at a person's soul. The exterior fluff that we hold so important, like our financial things, our, uh, the color of our carpet, the, the, the styles of curtains we have, or, or uh, whatever the case may be, he's not impressed with that. Jesus isn't impressed with that stuff. God's not impressed with that stuff. He's looking right directly at us, looking at our very soul, looking at the heart of a person because he's about truth. 
His feet were like fine bronze. Now it's important to understand bronze uh, was overcast, uh, overlaid the uh, the shields of the day. Uh, the bronze swords were impenetrable. So in other words, here he's talking about the strength that Jesus has. Flames of fire, fine bronze as it was fired in a furnace, meaning that it was incredibly strong. So he's speaking to his strength here. His voice like the sound of cascading waters. Think of James Earl Jones, the voice of Darth Vader. I mean, think of this deep voice, penetrating voice, this voice that reverberates to the innermost recesses of your soul. He had seven stars in his hand. Okay, stars uh, could represent angels. It, it could. Uh, there, there are many different interpretations here, but remember, seven is a number of perfection. It may be that this is talking about uh, the leaders of the church here, possibly. In his right hand, a, dull, a sharp, double-edged sword came from his mouth. Is this literally happening? No, but he's talking about that he has that this is a double-edged sword. Uh, is speaking of the Word of God coming from Him that's able, the Bible tells us that the Word of God is able to divide spirit and soul, bone and marrow, that is penetrating. This means that He has the power to speak, and it's done. And His face was shining like the sun at full strength, illuminescent with the full glory of of Almighty God. Now that just the just that one passage of scripture, there was a lot there. But I hope you see the depth of the symbols and, and metaphors used in apocalyptic literature. So it's important for us to slow down and take our time as we're reading through Revelation and, and Daniel and these other passages of Scripture to try to understand the symbols. And for me, I think when we stop and look at the symbols, that even though there are scary parts to apocalyptic literature, I find it very encouraging to know that someone described like that is my advocate, fighting for me, uh, purifying me of my sins. And Lord knows he's had a lot to purify me over the course of uh, 46 years and counting, hopefully, if God grants me life on this earth, however long he wants me here, you know, I want to, I want to give glory to him, you know, whatever, you know, I want to give glory to him. But, uh, but again, understanding that you have a guy like that fighting for you, um, this, this omnipotent person, holy, good, pure individual known as Jesus Hamashiach, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Son of Man, Jesus the Son of God, the Pantocrator, the Almighty, the Omnipotent One fighting for you, the El Shaddai. Uh, <laughs> the list could go on and on when we think of the divine names of God. Just to think that the Creator of the heaven and earth is fighting for us and that He is on our side. Friend, if you look at it like that, Revelation should be one of the most encouraging books of all the Bible. But yet we get stuck up on stuck on all these things that could happen, but when you really slow down and look at especially the divine titles and the symbols used for Jesus and for God, it can really transform the way you interpret apocalyptic literature. Friends, I have gone way over time. Uh, maybe it's not a good idea that I'd 
record these podcasts early. Uh, but anyhow, I hope this has been beneficial for you. If you have any questions, for instance, I, I want to encourage you, go to the website. Go to the website. There is a place there for you to submit a question to Bellator Christie. I hear people all the time say, man, you cover some deep stuff here. Listen, this is meant to inform and edify the church. It's not. We've got a lot of scholars on our team, and it's not to show how smart anyone is. It's to edify, to educate you, and to help you as you learn more about the truths of Scripture. It's because it, it, our goal at Bellator Christie is to take some of these high tier things we've learned in our time in in academia and make it relatable and applicable for you no matter where you are but we don't know we can't know if you have questions if you don't ask so contact one of our team members contact me on facebook you can find me at facebook.com forward slash dr brian chilton dr brian chilton uh leave me a message there by teams if you have a question go to the website that's one of the best ways go to bellatorchristie.com and uh, look for, there should be a place where you can submit a question to Bellator Christie. Let us know, and we'll handle it. Either one of our team members will cover it uh, on a future article, or it may be included in a future broadcast of the Question Zone uh, that we have coming up. And by the way, we've already received some really good questions that uh, we hope to cover on the next edition of the Question Zone. Beloved, this is Dr. Brian Chilton. I hope you've you've been blessed by tonight's podcast. I've enjoyed bringing it to you. I hope you've been blessed uh, from what we've discussed tonight. I love talking about the genres of biblical literature. Don't forget, next week we have a double header. We're going to talk about a little bit about prophecy, and then we're going to talk about biblical interpretation, three ways that people throughout history have, uh, especially the early church, how they... um, looked at biblical interpretation and what the best path for us is it the way of Antioch is it the way of Alexandria or is it the middle ground found in Augustine we'll talk more about that coming up next week ladies and gentlemen this has been Dr. Brian Chilton and you've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast good night You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The views expressed on this podcast may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. This program is protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. If you enjoyed this podcast, then be sure to subscribe and leave a positive review. Also, tell a friend. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas.